I agreed to be chairman of a local non-profit Christian mission agency called Cross Connecting Network, a group that seeks to support Christians in Pakistan with the goal of seeing Pakistan become a Christian nation, a very lofty goal. Now, as many of you know, I've been visiting Pakistan with our brother Barry Emerson and a number of others from Holy Cross, Daniel Arnfra. for I've been a few times over the last five years, and while it's not an easy trip, it is always so worthwhile. Each time I come back encouraged in my faith and challenged to take more risks for the sake of the gospel. Just last Saturday, as we sat and listened to our friend Bishop Mushtaq, who's preached here numerous times, that we listened to him speak to us via Zoom. He was in Karachi. Uh, and we heard about the 200 churches that have been planted in 2022. It was hard not to be convicted about the lack of churches our diocese has planted in the last 10 years. And these are not just churches that seek to hide themselves in the midst of a predominantly Muslim nation. It's 98% Muslim. No, the vision and charge that they're given by Mushtaq and this really well-organized team of leaders that he has is to be colas. Colas. Now, what do I mean? Well, they're using a product that's as popular, recognizable, and readily available in the developing world as it is in the USA, Coca-Cola. They've created a memorable acronym that communicates what it means to be the church. Colas are communities of light and salt, C-O-L-A-S, communities of light and salt. And this vision for being colas comes straight out of our gospel reading for today from Matthew. It's Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he calls the first disciples to be like salt and light in the midst of the first century Palestinian culture within which they find themselves. Now, salt is because in the ancient world, the number one function of salt was it was used as a preservative, and there were no ice-making machines in those days, and refrigeration would have been beyond their wildest dreams. And so the church as salt was to function as a preventer of decay and a preservative in a disintegrating world. Jesus was saying, in effect, humanity without me is a dead body that's rotting and falling apart. And you, my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh to halt the decomposition. And then he talks about light because the world we live in is a dark place. You just have to turn on the news, maybe you did this morning or last night, to see it's a dark and broken place we live in. And so the church is called to reflect the light of Christ in the world, much as the moon reflects the light of the sun at night. Now, sometimes the church does this better than other times, but whether the church is a full moon or it's a new thumbnail moon, waxing or waning, it reflects the light of the sun, S-O-N. Colas, then, communities of light and salt, communities of light and salt. And as we read in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and then the rest of Acts and the whole of the New Testament, in fact, the call to be salt and light was something that the early church took very seriously. And it's one that the church is still called to take seriously today, both globally and locally here on Daniel Island and beyond. So let's dig a little deeper into this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And as we do, we'll see that the call to the Christian life is a call to changed attitudes and changed actions, to live in community or colas as people empowered by the Spirit to shine brightly in the darkness. 
But first of all, let's start with what do colas look like? What do they look like? Well, the context of this passage today is really important in figuring this out. And so as we dig a little deeper, it'll be helpful if you have your Bible app open because we're actually going to look at the scripture on either side of this passage as well as the passage in the middle. If you don't have a Bible app, that's fine. You're welcome to just use the scripture sheet, but not all of it will be in there today. So if you have a Bible app or a Bible, then open it up to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and follow along there. So our gospel reading today is actually sandwiched between two sections of the Sermon on the Mount that give us a great deal of help in understanding what it means to be a community of light and salt. And if you just read the passage we had today, you might be a little bit confused or not have the full picture. So we'll take a look at, um, first of all, the passage prior to our lesson, Matthew 5, 3 through 12. And we have a famous passage called the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word blessings, blessings. And here Jesus lists the characteristics of a Christian. And in one sense, if this helps you to remember better, you could say that these are the B attitudes, or rather the attitudes believers are meant to be, which is terrible grammar, I know, but these are the B attitudes, all right? <laughs> Hopefully my background might help you to remember it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, it certainly doesn't look like a list for successful living, does it? <laughs> or 10 principles to get ahead in the modern world. But the call to the Christian life is a counter-cultural one. It doesn't follow the patterns of this world, and it never will. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, conforming to this world is something we struggle with. We really wrestle with this, I think, as, as just people in general. I, uh, one example of this has come to my uh, notice in the last couple of years, and it began with a phone call to the church. Someone called up the church, and they, they said to her, they asked us the question of, what color white have you painted the church building? I'm thinking, well, I didn't know there was more than one color white. <laughs> so I managed to get hold of the painters, and we found out it was a particular shade of white that we have painted these buildings. And the reason was that they wanted to paint their home that shade of white, which is, you know, not, I guess, that unusual. But I've noticed since then that it seems like every house on Daniel Island is starting to turn white. Anyone else notice that? <laughs> Suddenly, everybody wants a white house. And that's what we do. We conform to the pattern of the world in all kinds of ways, whether it's in the color of... Uh, the house that we have, or whether it's in something more serious. Paul knows we're tempted to do that, and so does Jesus. But the life of someone with a renewed mind, as he's talking about, is one characterized by humility, by servanthood, by submission, and by enduring great hardship and pain for the sake of God and for others. 
Now let me be brutally honest with you. If you're not looking for that kind of life, then don't follow Jesus. That's the life that he lays out over and over again. Not only this, though, as if this wasn't hard enough, it's also a life that's characterized by obedience, by self-control, and by righteous living. Now, please note that I didn't say self-righteous living. No, this way of life isn't motivated by a desire to make myself look better in front of others, and that's something that the religious leaders of Jesus' time were known for, but rather to make Jesus look better in front of others. That's the difference between self-righteous and righteous living. And the latter part of our passage today, and then the remainder of chapter 5, makes this clear. Yes, if the passage prior to our reading today was about our attitudes, our be attitudes, then the one immediately after our passage is about our actions, our actions. You see, in verses 17 through 20, which is in our reading today, Jesus makes it clear that he hasn't come to get rid of the commandments laid out in the Old Testament, but rather he has come to fulfill them. Listen to what he says. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is challenging his followers that even though the Pharisees may have impure motives in keeping all the regulations and laws, and even though they may often be very self-righteous about it, the church must in fact be more zealous about following the commandments of God than they are. Now, to be clear, though, he's not talking about the Old Testament ceremonial command concerning animal sacrifices for the atonement of their sin. No, Jesus is going to fulfill all of these commands in his sacrifice on the cross. And he's also not talking about all the civil laws that Moses gives to Egypt once they escape from slavery in Egypt. They, these are no longer needed for the people of God as it moves from being a nation, which it was as the Jews, to a transnational movement after the day of Pentecost. In other words, the church. No, Jesus is talking about the moral laws that he outlines in the Torah, such as the Ten Commandments. Do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not murder, etc. The church is called to be zealous and holy in keeping these. And then to reinforce this, Jesus goes into more detail in the remainder of chapter 5. If you have it on your app, you can uh, pull it up, beginning in verse 21 and then culminating in verse 48. And here Jesus speaks about some really tough stuff that we don't like to talk about a lot of the time because it's hard to deal with. He talks about our temper. He talks about our sexual behavior, our marriages, our promises, our revenge, and those we're tempted to hate. No, it's simply, no longer is it simply enough to follow the letter of the law. In fact, it really never was. No, it's all about our hearts, and it was the whole time. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus raises the bar with regard to our temper and our anger. And he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whew. Ever called anyone a fool? Ding, ding, yeah. Ooh. 
Yes, even if you've been angry with someone or you insult them, then you're liable to the same judgment as a murderer. Now, sometimes I hear people say, you know what? I like that Jesus guy, but the Old Testament, mm, I'm not so sure about that. I think, man, have you read what Jesus says in here? (laughs) He's raising the bar, people. Your heart isn't right before God, even if your outward behavior looks good to everyone else. And then in chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus raises the bar on our sexual behavior, saying, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh boy, ever lusted after someone? Right? Yes, not only is all sexual behavior outside of marriage prohibited for Christians, but according to Jesus, to even think sexual thoughts about someone who's not your spouse is prohibited. And then in verse 31 and 32, he raises the bar on the covenant of marriage. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There are no no no-fault divorces allowed here as has become common practice among the Jewish men. No, Christian marriage is for life except in exceptional circumstances. And then Jesus takes on promises or oaths in verse 34 through 37. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let what you say simply uh, be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see, when you give your word, you shouldn't swear using God's name or a pinky swear or a scout's honor or whatever you've done or on your mother's grave or even on your own life. No, your reputation should simply be that of someone who says when they're going to do something that they do it. And then in verses 38 to 42, Jesus raises the bar on taking revenge. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. When it comes to taking personal revenge on someone, the principle of lex talionis, as it's called, an eye for an eye, it's gone. No, justice is for the law courts. And our call as Christians is to forgive even when we are greatly wronged by someone. And then finally, Jesus speaks about those who, were t- those who we're tempted to hate. Verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whereas it had been culturally acceptable for Jews to hate their enemies, in God's economy, that's not the way his followers are called to live. Christians are called to love their enemies in word and in deed and to even be praying for them. And then finally, in an impossible charge to all of his followers, Jesus wraps it up in verse 48 by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so as one person puts it, the behavior Jesus is looking for is qualitative, not quantitative. He's not looking for more rule followers, if you get what I mean, but more followers who are motivated by a love for him, a love for him and a desire to obey him out of loving obedience. 
And so this is the context of our reading today, where Jesus talks about colas. And the call for Christians to be colas, communities on light and salt, such as these here on Holy Cross on Daniel Island, is a call to countercultural living. It's counter to the culture we live within. In a culture that says we're justified to be angry and to cancel or to block or to ignore anyone who has a disagreement with us or who slights us for even the smallest of offenses, Jesus says, have mercy. Have mercy. In a culture that says sleep with whomever you like, whenever you like, as long as you do it safely and consensually, Jesus says sex is for the marriage bed alone. This is God's best for us, not a one-night stand or even a committed cohabitation arrangement. In a culture that says if you don't feel like you love your spouse anymore, then you can just end your marriage, Jesus says marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And that covenant before God is lifelong. In a culture that still uses the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus says, forgive. Not once, but 70 times, seven times, over and over and over again. In a culture that says we're justified to hate those who disagree with us or who've offended us, Jesus says, love them, serve them, pray for them. This is what communities of salt and light are like. They are filled with people who are trying to live this kind of lifestyle in their attitudes and in their actions. Not in our own strength, mind you, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's power, the same power that healed the sick, that raised the dead, that cast out demons, that calmed the storm. And so if you're a Christian, as you hear this, you might be tempted to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. And you are right. You are right. You can't. This means you've come to the point, full circle, of being poor in spirit. Remember that back at the beginning of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? They get the kingdom of heaven. When we get to that point of realizing we can't do it, it's good news. <laughs> when we become poor in spirit, it's good news. We are blessed. And when you mourn over your sin, the second of the Beatitudes, perhaps you're struggling with your temper or your temptation to view pornography or the unkind, unkind words you just spoke to someone or the loss of your marriage of 40 years, Jesus says, you're blessed if you mourn and you will be comforted. He is the God who comforts us. And when you're persecuted for living this way, perhaps people call you a bigot or a prude or unrealistic or out of date or they say that you are on the wrong side of history, remember that Jesus says you're blessed and that you will receive your reward in heaven. See, as one commentator puts it, here in Matthew 5, Jesus explains the full and rich implications of God's perfect law so that we might embrace poverty of spirit, recognizing our unrighteousness and thus our need for God's perfect righteousness. We must know that the road to heaven is not paved with good intentions, good works, or even keeping the works of the law as if that could be done, but it has been paved already by the man of sorrows who bled for our sins, carried the cross of our condemnation, and died so we might live. You know, put more simply, it's God's grace, by his grace, that we've been saved. And it's God's grace that we can now live for him. Colas are ultimately communities of grace. 
grace. But we recognize that we are all sinners in need of a savior. And we keep on reaching out to the lost who haven't realized this yet. Let me close by challenging you about one thing. There's a version of the Bible you can find online that I love. It's called the Yule Bible. And Yule's not really a word I feel comfortable using. Because <laughs> it doesn't sound very good with a British accent, I've tended to find. <laughs> and often people are like, well, what did he just say? What's that word you used? But I love how it helps us distinguish between you singular and you plural. It's brilliant for that. Something that's not clear in scripture a lot of time. And unless you're a Hebrew or a Greek scholar, which even though I've studied both, I am not, it's hard to tell which is being used. And so this week as I was preparing, I was intrigued to see which version of the word you Jesus was using in our passage. And so I opened up the Yule Bible. That's hard. On my phone. <laughs> and I scroll to Matthew chapter 5, and lo and behold, Jesus is using you plural, y'all, throughout this passage. There you go. Jay, say it for us. Come on. Y'all. There you go. Y'all. Thank you, Jay. We needed a southern boy to say it. He's using that throughout this passage, which confirmed my suspicions. You see, the Christian journey is not meant to be walked alone. And for some of you, I know that this is a real struggle. And each time we talk about being part of a community or part of a church family or part of the body of Christ, it bothers you because it goes against the grain of the Western individualism within which we are all being raised. It goes against the grain. When you choose to follow Jesus, he calls you to die to self and to come follow him within the church. That's these beautiful, wonderful people around you, not the walls that surround us today. He calls you into costly, time-consuming relationships with other believers, people you wouldn't normally associate with outside of the church, people who are not like you, but who are your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You cannot be a community of salt and light on your own. Number one, it doesn't make sense. You can't be a community on your own. And number two, it will kill you, friends. You need the love, the support, the encouragement, and the accountability of others. People who will remind you of right attitudes and right actions, and who will lovingly correct you when you live with wrong attitudes and wrong actions. So who are you sharing life with? At Holy Cross, we have a simple way to do this. We call it life groups. These small colas are about much more than Bible study. They exist beyond that hour that we gather to study the Bible and pray together. They are groups that seek to shine brightly and to act as that preservative within our culture. And if you haven't tried one yet, try one. Or if you tried one and gave up, now's the time to try again. Remember, friends, the call to the Christian life is a call to changed attitudes and changed actions, to live in community or colas as people empowered by the Spirit to shine brightly in the darkness. Let us take this charge seriously in order that all people might come to know the love and mercy of God. Amen.